You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. Today's cool fact of the day is about the psychological effects of failure. It turns out that failure makes the same goal seem less attainable. It distorts your perceptions of your abilities. It can make you believe that you're helpless. And just one single failure experience can create an unconscious fear of failure. When you have fear of failure, you can sabotage yourself without even knowing it. And it's something that you can transmit to your own kids or maybe you got from your parents. The pressure to succeed increases performance anxiety, which causes you to choke. And well, this is the real end of the cool fact of the day. It's that a great way to overcome choking is actually to whistle or mutter. So when you feel like, you're like, oh, what am I going to do? Just whistling or kind of just talking to yourself for a little while can make a difference. And the psychologically healthiest response to failure is to focus on the variables that are in your control. If you really want to focus on failure, though, you could do what I do with my kids. Every day, I celebrate my biggest fail, and they celebrate their biggest fail. Because if you don't fail at something, it means you weren't working at your edges. When failure becomes a success, well, then the fear of failure just goes away. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD+, even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. This is part two of the Bulletproof Radio interview with Tim Ferriss, where we talk about the tools that successful people use to create health and wealth and wisdom, and some of which can be found in his new book. Let's get back on with Tim. Have you tried Ibogaine, or are you willing to talk about it? Yeah, can I can talk about it. I can talk take about the it. fifth. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not going to take the fifth. Uh, so I should just, as a caveat for people listening, the, the legal, in the United States, the legal side effects of using anything that we're talking about right now mm-hmm. uh, are extremely severe. And yeah. uh, these these compounds are in the same class, Schedule One, as cocaine and heroin. So if you are caught with these things, uh, much uh, more so if you are caught with enough that it could be considered intent to distribute, you can go to jail for a long time, twenty plus years. That all having been said, uh, I have used ibogaine, specifically ibogaine, the alkaloid, not iboga, 
and in a microdosing protocol. And I've oh, experimented. That I haven't heard of. That's cool. Yeah. So I have not gone on, nor do I have very, I don't have real interest in going on a full ride iboga or ibogaine experience. I know a lot of people involved in it, many doctors who are working with heroin addicts. Crossroads and places, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And uh, it has tremendous applications in that particular sphere, but ibogaine also has the worst safety record of any psychedelic that uh, I have seen, uh, mostly related to cardiac events. So to date, and some people think this is, the numbers are actually much higher, uh, closer to one in a hundred, but the number that is thrown around is one in 300 people will have a fatal cardiac event. Now, if you have proper medical supervision and they're looking at pulse oximeters, they're looking at your pulse, heart rate, and you're hooked up to proper machines, they have atropine on hand and so on, that shouldn't happen. Uh, but nonetheless, it looks like at least in the somewhat highly unregulated and mm. largely, I think in many cases, sadly unqualified yeah. clinics that are providing Ibogaine, people die. Uh, but I've microdosed it uh, at very low dosages, we're talking in the two to four milligram range total, uh, which is at least, or I should say, yeah, at least, or at maximum one one hundredth, as I understand it, of the MIGs per KIGS full ride dose that I would potentially use in a say ceremonial or heroin slash opiate uh, detox protocol. Uh, so I, I, I have done quite a bit of experimentation on, on that side of things. What, what hard hard to get, hard to get. Uh, very, well, I, where I live, it's legal. I'm in Canada, so I yeah. isn't scheduled here. Yeah, yeah. in the US, it's like nipples and Ibogaine, both get, both get you in a lot of trouble. <laughs> now, uh, what did you experience from microdosing that? I mean, I, I yeah. may or may not have microdosed a few other substances. Yeah, for sure. And actually, so, so the three, I should say, the, the three longest chapters in Tools of Titans, and they're long. Uh, the first is on fasting and ketosis and Dominic D'Agostino. And we did a yeah. lot of extra conversations and a lot of emails to, to flesh it out. The other two are all on psychedelics and talk about a lot of the experimentation in my personal schedule and so on. In the case of microdosing Ibogaine, I can tell you exactly what I noticed. So first off, uh, it is... It did not induce any hallucinations whatsoever, which is very deliberate. Uh, it had for me initially the effect of perhaps perhaps half a tablet of Adderall, and, which I'm not particularly fond of. Yeah, I got I got a, I got a mild prefrontal headache. Mm -hmm. uh, if I combined it, or I shouldn't say combined it, but if I consumed green tea within two hours, uh, the the side effects, meaning this this frontal headache, were much worse was not the case with black tea. And I had a slightly buzzy, very, very mild, mildly anxious feel for the first three to four hours. Uh, in that period of time, though, I did have heightened attention. And it is used by some people as a very mild stimulant. In fact, it was sold in France for precisely that reason. It was sold as, <laughs> as a stimulant uh, many, many years ago. And uh, what's interesting to me is not what happens on the first day. It's what happens subsequently. And there, there are some speculative, uh, not entirely implausible explanations for why this would be, like upregulation of the mu opioid receptors and so on. For the next two to three days, I feel like my happiness set point is about 15% higher, 15 to 20% wow. higher. And I have the non-reactivity, the kind of cool and dispassionate assessment of things that I don't react emotionally, overly emotionally, that would typically take for me two to three weeks of daily meditation without without fail. And that is like that. And I, I utilized in this particular case, or the, the, the regimen that I landed on was uh, microdosing on Mondays and Fridays. So I've done that for months at a time. And uh, found it very, very, uh, at least in terms of observable side effects, very, very low. Based on the, uh, my reviews of the very scant literature involving human trials uh, and also rat uh, studies with Ibogaine uh, or Iboga, uh, 
they have observed, for instance, at higher milligrams of ibogaine per kilogram of body weight in mice, uh, some, uh, I should say, several types of brain damage. Uh, but at the lower dosages, uh, certainly, uh, no one's looked at microdosing that I'm aware of, but at those doses, these types of side effects were not uh, observed. And the fact of the matter is, the dose makes the poison. So oh, if, yeah. I, if I want to kill you with water, I can kill you with water. <laughs> I, I mean, and I'm not talking about drowning you, I'm talking about making you drink it until your yeah. heart stops working. So the dose makes the poison. So it's 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 not surprising to me that you take some weird psychedelic stimulant from West Africa and you force feed a shovel full of it to a rat, that bad things are going to happen. I'm not terribly surprised by that. But nonetheless, uh, it, it, it is uh, more dangerous, certainly, uh, I would say, than psilocybin and some of these others that I, that I mentioned, at least based on the data that we have available. Uh, there are some people who are aiming to develop... Uh, or take metabolites like noribogaine uh, and develop them into pharmaceuticals that allow some of the uh, detox and it appears like opiate or opioid receptor resetting that ibogaine mm -hmm. accomplishes without the some of the side effects. Uh, so yeah, these are these are all topics that I'm digging very deeply into for sure. Uh, it's uh, it, it's really fascinating because it, it's it's still controversial. I, I mean, there are people out there who are, who are like, if you use any hallucinogens, you're you know it, it's tied to the CIA and you know you're a bad yeah. Satanist people. I'm like, there's a lot of wacky stuff out there, but we're talking extremely small amounts that, in studies and just observably, improve your performance like meaningfully. Oh yeah, and I mean the my my general predisposition and preference is focusing on compounds in whole food form. Call me old-fashioned, uh, but I, I think that we can get pretty epistemologically arrogant to think that mm -hmm. we understand how exactly every component in a given plant functions, the sum of the parts. I think that's, I think that's generally reaching because do we even have the technology to identify all the constituent <laughs> Components in the first place, probably not. So, uh, for me, I defer when trying to research or certainly use these compounds to plants that have been used for millennia, most likely by uh, at least one or ideally multiple civilizations. And uh, look, I mean, <laughs> that isn't exactly a placebo-controlled, <laughs> randomized trial, but uh, <laughs> humans figure out pretty quickly if, <laughs> over a few thousand years of regular consumption what things really mess you up or kill you uh, yeah. because you win a Darwin Award otherwise. So I'm not saying all these things are, are safe at all, by the way. I, I, use no. these, I use these substances with supervision. I very often have medical, uh, medical personnel or MDs in attendance. I take this stuff very, very seriously because could you certainly... Uh, exa uh, exacerbate or even trigger predispositions to schizophrenia? Absolutely. One of my cousins by marriage fried his brains using LSD and his family had a history of schizophrenia and he went from super high functioning chess whiz to staring off into space. I kid you not. And I've wow. seen that firsthand. Part of the reason I don't use LSD, but that's a longer story. Uh, it has applications to a lot of stuff. It's just not my, not my tool of choice. And uh, if you're in an unsafe environment or an uncontrolled environment, yeah. you are using a hallucinogen. Uh, the, <laughs> you may decide that you can fly and step out of a window. You may decide that you want to go for a walk and walk out into a street, which actually happened to me once very, very early on in college when I was experimenting with these, but I didn't know how to properly yeah. uh, manage the surroundings and circumstances, I came out of a trip standing in the middle of the road in the middle of the night with headlines, uh, headlights coming down on me. That's, wow. not, that's not safe. So caveat emptor, folks, take this stuff seriously, but very powerful compounds that uh, have incredible applications to uh, treatment-resistant depression, potentially. Uh, End-of-life anxiety in cancer patients. PTSD. Opiate addiction, which, by the way, of the 22 or 23 veterans who commit suicide in the United States every day, about a mm -hmm. third are associated with opiate addiction, prescription medication, yeah. opiate addiction. And the list goes on. If you, and if you look at 
even with the small data set that we have so far, so it's preliminary, let's call it that, the magnitude of effect and the duration of effect after a single dose, let's just say, of psilocybin, uh, there's a study that was just, uh, uh, just received a bunch of coverage in the New York Times a few days ago, and it was looking at cancer patients and uh, antidepressive effects of psilocybin. And I think it was 80% of the subjects who received psilocybin seven months later still reported a significant effect from yeah. one dose. Uh, there is no other intervention that I am aware of, and I've read quite a bit of the literature, that comes even close to that. Uh, and you can say the same thing for uh, nicotine addiction and alcoholism. Very few people realize way back in the day when AA was being formed, the, uh, the founder wanted to have LSD as one of the steps because he himself became <laughs> sober after a psychedelic experience uh, using something else, but nonetheless, LSD was what was most readily available at the time. So I'm, I'm glad that people are revisiting this. It's still yeah. very much politically maligned for uh, scientifically, I think, un, uh, indefensible reasons. Um, it's it's puritanical bullshit. I, yeah. I, I don't swear that much on Bulletproof Radio except when it's really deserved, but sorry. Yeah. <laughs> That's what it's deserved for, right? Yeah. I'm from Long Island. It doesn't offend me. Oh, I, I, I wasn't apologizing to you, Tim. That was for the people listening who were like, Dave doesn't normally swear. My kids are listening. Sorry, kids. Don't say that at home. Earmuffs. Uh, earmuffs, kids. Right. Now, what you're saying about, about using these things for drug and alcohol addiction is, is powerful. When, when people ask me this, and you probably get asked this all the time too, like what, what would you do for a heroin addict? These are clearly people who are asking for a friend. And yeah. like in my mind, there's, there's two heavy big guns, and one is Ibogaine, uh, and the other one is cerebral electrical stimulation. They have the most evidence behind this. There's running little electrical current across the brain. And everything else pales in comparison in studies. There's just things that are either controversial, no one's, no one's heard of, or they seem scary. So I'm, yeah. I'm grateful that you're, you're just talking about it, just laying it yeah. out there. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean it's, it's in the dedication page. It's on the dedication page of my book, is the commitment to apply a, a non-trivial portion of the proceeds to studies and scientific research at places like Johns Hopkins and so on that are hopefully going to steer the ship and get these compounds rescheduled uh, in such a way that I'm not even concerned at this point about everybody having access to it. I just want more research to be performed. Mm -hmm. And what's uh, if we want to just step away from the, say, addiction uh, aspect or the applications of these compounds, what's, what's so fascinating about, about psychedelics, which is also a loaded term, some people are now calling them entheogens, yep. is that at different dosages, the same compound behaves like a completely different drug. That is wild, right? So you have, we we're talking about microdosing. So in the case of mm -hmm. LSD, you might have 10 micrograms or 15 as, as a microdose. Then uh, that is subperceptual. So as one person put it, the rocks don't glitter even a little and the, the flowers don't <laughs> turn to look at you. Okay. So this is very subperceptual. And uh, microdosing has, has shown, as I think you might have mentioned, some, some very interesting applications to endurance sports. Uh, oh, yeah. Now, then you get to, let's just call it a museum or a concert dose, 50 milligrams. And then you start moving up to say, let's call it 100, 150. Mm -hmm. Basically a tab, right? For, yeah, for creative problem solving, including the hard sciences. So James Fadiman, who is in the book as well, worked with uh, a number of corporations at one point who brought in people who had become stuck trying to say design new circuit boards or solve complex mm -hmm. mathematical problems. And it was something like 33 out of 35 with his particular regimen, which involved LSD, were able to then find solutions, meaning uh, solve equations or publish papers, design circuit boards, 33 out of 35, or something just incredible like that. So that's, that's let's, let's call it like the 150. Then you go up and you get to sort of the, the transcendent and then the heroic. And, uh, you know, if you want to cleave away from your, if you want to cleave off your, evo, uh, your ego and strap yourself to the icebreaker <laughs> of existential uh, pain and delight, then there's that too, right? So it's, it's incredible how different the effects are. It's not like the, you start seeing the same effect at a low dose and then it just gets more intense. It's, it's very, very different. Uh, yeah, yeah, very well played. So, yeah, go uh, figure. Hopefully we'll learn more after a, after a whole 
set of dozens and dozens of studies get done. I've thought about actually funding studies in Canada uh, for, uh, for a lot of reasons, including cost, well, legality and therefore cost for, say, you know, if, if you're years. serious about that, that Tim, I mean, I, I'm not a Canadian citizen yet. I'm a permanent resident up here, but they have Canadian grants for R&D that's done up here where the government writes checks for a lot of money for Canadian-based companies, even yeah. if they're not owned and run by Canadians. So you, it, so you could probably get like doubling down on whatever the grant was as long as there's an R&D aspect to it. So cool. Canada's a cool place and, and dollars are very cheap up here. You can just buy them like with American Sweet. dollars and you get like extra money. So You anyway, get extra, extra doubloonies, as they yeah. say. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Now... Well, let me do a quick time check with you. Mm -hmm. uh, we can go over some more stuff in the book. Do you have time for that? Do you want to yeah. keep chatting for a little while? Yeah, right. I, I'm I having have, fun. I, I, I have to. I, I do have a, uh, I, a. What do you think about like maybe another fifteen minutes? Does that work yeah. for you? Because I have. Totally I, I have a date with another uh, smart drug, which is known as wine, uh, and I have a, a bit of a, a meeting and a commitment that I have to get to. But yeah, I'm happy to do yeah. another. Let's let's do another fifteen. I'm happy to talk about I, whatever. All right, I, I can respect that commitment to wine, but you're going to have to share with uh, with our listeners exactly which wine you have a day with. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I was enjoying some uh, Trapiche Malbec and Catena Malbec, uh, which is from high altitude, uh, from Argentina. And uh, tonight, you know, I, I, I've I've been getting a little frisky. I've been getting a little promiscuous with my wine drinking. And I know nothing about Italian wines. So for the last two days, I've been having very fruity, Pinot Noir-esque Italian wines that I can't pronounce. So that's, uh, that's my, I guess it's a blind date at this point. Nice. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know who's going to show up. <laughs> Fair enough. Now, you had Lyme disease. You were real public about that yeah. for a while, which, which uh, I know we, we chatted at the time. And uh, I, I had it for a long time, and it, it totally knocked me down. And one of the reasons that I, I know so much about ketosis and all is that it really helped me get my brain back on. Uh, um, I, I can tolerate wine now better than I ever could in the last like 15 years. What I want to know, and I think a substantial number of people listening want to know too, did you tolerate wine and beer and things like that before Lyme disease, during Lyme disease, and did it change after Lyme disease? That is a very good question that I haven't pondered before. Uh, to be honest, I don't recall drinking very much when I was at 10%, when I was really, really knocked down. Yeah, when we were drained. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I was operating at literally 10% at best capacity for about nine months. And I, I, I don't remember much from that period at yeah, all. Yeah, the brain fog is severe. Yeah, I don't remember much at all of what happened uh, other than just painful joints and slurred speech and forgetting friends' yeah. names and yeah. feeling like I had dementia for that period of time out on Eastern well, you pretty much You pretty much did have yeah, dementia for that much, period of time. pretty much do. And uh, I don't think I drank very much during that period, so I, I couldn't tell you. I would say okay. that at this point, my response to alcohol seems to be roughly equivalent to what it was before Lyme disease. But I'll tell you something else is that when I... And I'm not sure I mentioned this when we spoke about it. When I had the very imperfect but unfortunate uh, solely available testing done, so the Western mm -hmm. blot and the Elysian so blot, they said, uh, you realize that you've actually had Lyme disease before, right? And the long-term antibodies were positive. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that, I think, could explain some, some really tough periods that I had when I was a kid that had a lot of yeah. long-term, I think, implications. But um, to the alcohol question, I don't know. I can share a little discovery, though, that you might enjoy sure. related to alcohol. So I, I, I had a, a really tough breakup maybe a year and a half ago and long relationship and uh, there, I won't get into all the, the juicy details, but no one did anything bad. It was just one of those like... Yeah. I think it's time it works for us or to, doesn't. Yeah, time for us to part ways, and it was very tough for me. And uh, one of my buddies, being a good buddy, was like, "Hey, idiot! You're not allowed to mope around in your house for the next six months. Come to Sweden with me. I'm going to Sweden." <laughs> and I was like, "All right, I'll go to Sweden." Get the bra. <laughs> and uh, and I kind of dragged myself there, and my friend just proceeded to try to feed me ungodly amounts of alcohol and convince me to to do stupid very things. Swedish. Uh, and um, 
what I noticed though, after two nights of drinking, I would say an amount of alcohol, half of which would normally make me vomit without any subsequent vomiting. I was like, what is going on here? This is really weird. I've never had this much alcohol and not vomited halfway through. Because, wow. I mean, we're talking dozens of drinks, like vodka, wine, champagne. It was filthy. And you were mixing them. Ugh. Oh, it was terrible. I mean, just the, the worst sort of uh, night out alcohol hygiene you could imagine. It was terrible. But I didn't get sick. And I was, I was puzzled by this. And so I started looking at the various supplements and so on that I was taking, my diet, trying to figure out what might account for it because it was, it was consistent. And uh, what I eventually found doing some searches on not only PubMed but on Google Books mm-hmm. is that lysine appears to affect ethanol metabolism. So I was taking L-lysine a few grams mm-hmm. a day to just prevent any type of flu or whatnot because I, uh, I was low on, low on sleep to begin with low on sleep afterwards. I'd forgotten my passport. I couldn't, it was a big disaster getting there. So I was really sleep deprived and didn't want to get sick. So I was taking all this L-lysine and I've, I've replicated that since. I don't know if it's reliable. I don't know if there's much there or there, but, uh, so that is something, if I know I'm going to have a big night, like I had a couple of nights ago at a friend's bachelor party, which was, uh, you know, alcohol in those quantities, not my preferred sport, but L-lysine is definitely part of the portfolio. Oh, that's that's a pretty cool experiment. Yeah. I, I, I will also share an alcohol thing, which is going to offend uh, wine consumers everywhere. Uh, I, I'm pretty sketchy on a lot of American wines because our standards for mycotoxins are not nearly as tight as Europeans. Like a good French wine is like two parts per billion, and here I think it's 10. Uh, and it's not well regulated, so I I, I feel the difference. And I have weird dreams when I get American wine. I don't get it from French wine, and um, there are some good American brands. They're just like it, it's you, you got to know which vintage and what year and, yeah. and all that. So I had some wine that was organic and reasonably clean, but I was a little nervous. And I was with in Hawaii, and I drank half half of it. And the next day, I'm like, oh, this has been sitting out, and I'll just try this. So I took the wine. Put it in the blender. I added the brain octane and some ice, and I blended it up. And it makes this crazy lavender color that's entirely unnatural for a food. And yes, it was ruining a wine, but it had already been opened for 24 hours, so it wasn't that sinful. But the the brain octane uh, actually, in in studies, helps to prevent damage from uh, LPS, lipopolysaccharides, that alcohol escorts across the gut. Uh, specifically to the liver. So it basically supports liver stuff. And so just biochemically, I'm like, this might make me not have an effect. So I drank half the bottle the first night and was got mildly buzzed and felt good, and but it was a little stiff the next morning. And I drank the other half the next night, and I was like, okay, it did. It tastes more like a wine cooler smoothie thing. But it was like, <laughs> it was like delicious. I sampled it on other people without telling them what it was, and they're like, what drink is this? Like, I want to buy that. So like, it was good enough to pass... <laughs> The, the fruity umbrella straw test. Anyway, I don't know what, that, what that's worth it, but you, you might, like when you're in ketosis, you might see that there's a difference there. So my question there is, were you in ketosis? Uh, were you running on, no, on beta-hydroxybutyrate? No, I was you were not. not, okay. No, no. Ah. In Sweden, it was like, hey, you want some more bread with your bread? It was, it was, it was <laughs> definitely not keto-friendly. Keto right. my, my wife is Swedish, and, and yeah, they, they oh, eat yeah. bread and herring and nothing else, and cheese, right? <laughs> Yes, ah, uh, Swedes. I love Sweden. But um, so I, on the alcohol question about um, as it related to Lyme, I don't know. I don't know. I really don't feel like I have any residual symptoms at this point. Good which, for you, which man. is great. Con- so congratulations on Thanks. that. There's a lot of people who who work on that quite a bit. That's been a big area of focus for me because, yeah. like you, you're saying I had it when I was young. There's a lot of people walking around who have Lyme or have uh, water damage in their environment or some other biological like like pathology and they don't know it and they walk around like angry all the time and like hating everyone around them and it's like it's biological it's not that you're an asshole it's yeah. that something is tweaking on you to make you act like an asshole and you probably feel bad about it yeah and it's it's really my one of my first recommendations i am not against antibiotics i think they serve an important function there's a lot of nonsense out there related to lyme disease i think it's widely misdiagnosed Mm -hmm. and uh all that having been said 
if people have tried the conventional therapies and, and, and don't seem to be making progress, I, as an adjunct to a number of friends, have recommended uh, getting to at least two millimolars uh, and just measuring it with a precision extra, for instance, uh, ketotic state through fasting then followed by diet. And uh, very small sample size. We're talking maybe five close friends who have come mm -hmm. to me with this. Uh, so far, 100% success rate in terms of uh, dramatically reducing or eliminating the symptoms of Lyme or what they assumed was Lyme, right? Yep. Because, because who knows? I, I didn't look at their, their there, blood well, tests. There, there's, there's mitochondrial pathologies that all kind of manifest the same way. There's a toxin from Lyme. There's a toxin from mold. There's a toxin from fish. There's excess mercury, but they all reduce mitochondrial function and ketones turn it back up, right? Like it, yeah. It, it's kind of cool. That's why I'm focusing so much on mitochondria in the next book because I'm like, yeah. wait, what's the uniting element in everything I've ever done that worked? And like, that's yeah. what they were. Yeah. So it's uh, how how about hits to hits to the head? Do I remember you talking to me about TBI? Oh, I have plenty of hits to the head. Yes, I've I've uh, plenty of just from all the years of combat sports and kickboxing yeah. and boxing and so on and wrestling, judo, getting thrown on my head. I mean, it's. It's pretty definitive, I would say, or certain that I have uh, a decent amount of. Uh, I've had concussions for sure. I mean, one hundred percent diagnosed. I've been knocked unconscious. It's not good. I, I've been, I've been looking at the brains of of senior executive types with the forty years of Zen neurofeedback stuff, and ninety percent of people come in for a performance upgrade. They have a, a, an observable TBI they don't know about. Like, look, this part of your brain looks like it's been smacked, and you can see it with a 24-channel EEG with software interpolation. I think it's a major performance inhibitor for even some of the world's highest performers. Yeah. Uh, and, like, I I took a really good hit to the head. Like, I got really bad TBI. Uh, I, I got food poisoning and passed out, and just my head hit the floor right in the temple. Like, I, I couldn't play Go Fish with my kids because my working memory was shot. I was swearing all the time. Uh, and I, I fortunately have the right tools. Once I recognized that it was uh, what it was, I was able to come back in a couple of weeks. But during that couple of weeks, I was like, I, I was kind of an asshole, yeah. like, like to to my employees, to to friends, and you don't even know what's happening. And I, I've talked with a few other really high performing people who had something like this happen, and, and like, oh my god, I'm so embarrassed at like the things I did. And it's like you're not yourself, right? Yeah, yeah. It's I can't turn back the sands of time at this point. Yeah. So I'm making the best of it. But I do think that it's certainly a contributing factor, maybe a contributing factor to uh, the depressive periods that I've had. I think that it uh, almost certainly plays a role in a lot of the depression, suicide, yeah. et cetera, that we see yeah. in veterans, whether mm -hmm. uh, very often they've been exposed to IEDs or different types of uh, head trauma. And... Uh, you know, these are these are all things that I'm exploring, but yeah, I'm trying not to do. So Derek Sivers, who's <clears throat> he's an incredible entrepreneur, also really kind of a philosopher programmer, who built CD Baby, which at the time was the largest mm -hmm. independent uh, music market, I suppose you could say, platform in the world, which he later sold. Uh, what he says to himself, and the advice he'd give his younger self is one of the pieces is don't be a donkey and this is going somewhere so don't be a donkey he'll remind himself and a number of my listeners have put this on their on their kitchen mirrors and things like that or rather bathroom mirrors and uh, it refers to burden's ass so when when derek was in his 30s he felt like the world wanted to pressure him into specializing in one thing but he wanted to do 10 things and he didn't want to conform to the expectations of other people and he wanted to have it all do it all and Burden's ass is a fable. There's a donkey in between, hay on one side and water on the other, and it can't decide if it wants to eat or if it wants to drink. Eat, drink, eat, drink, because the donkey can't think long term. And it, of course, could just do one and then the next, but it ends up dying in the middle because it can't, <laughs> because it can't make a decision. And don't be a donkey to him was effectively, you can do it all, you just can't do it at the same time. You have to mm -hmm. focus on one thing for a year, then maybe another for a year. If you try to do all 10 things, you'll get to a point five years later, you will not have made progress on any of them. And uh, there are so many areas that I'd like to explore, uh, particularly through more scientific studies and rigor. Mm -hmm. uh, but the first 
domino that I want to tip over is the, is the psychedelics. The, the TBI is very interesting to me. I think that the psychedelics in a way is an umbrella uh, potential modality uh, and treatment that could, and actually, uh, there, there's some literature to support this. Oh yeah, be applied. You're, you're very right. That's why I brought it up. Actually, was because yeah. of the psychedelic angle. Um, there are people who hit their head a large percentage of the time get PTSD, and you can work on the PTSD around that with the psychedelics, and maybe even just with increasing connectivity. So, it, I'm Tim. I, I love it that you're you're working with Johns Hopkins and that you're you're pushing on this because it's just science. Yeah. Like like we we want to know how it works, and if we don't do the research, we'll never know how it works. Right? Yeah, and the and the LD50, right? The dosage that would kill 50% of the population, or at least the subjects in the given study for these, is so low. Uh, with the exception of ibogaine, uh, in the case of say psilocybin that uh, the safety really is, is not an issue for at least a number of these compounds uh, when done in a proper setting. So the fact that there's Schedule 1, which is high potential for abuse or addiction, which is ludicrous when you look at mm -hmm. the, the, the existing <laughs> data, and yeah. B, no known medical application, it's silly, which is why I think it's very important to use uh, populations that are very hard to attack or malign. So cancer patients, terminal cancer patients, veterans, uh, people who have treatment-resistant depression. Uh, mm -hmm. Those are bipartisan issues, right? This, this should not be controversial. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to take like, a politically charged emotional debate that has been very counterproductive for the last few decades and turn it into just one of open-minded scientific inquiry. And uh, we'll see. You know, it's... Um, it's, it's, it's going to be a challenge, but it's the type of challenge that I like. And you know, fortunately, with a lot, of the, a lot of the habits and so on that I've accumulated over the last few years, I've become a little less combative and a little better at empathy and seeing solutions that aren't necessarily win-lose. Uh, not that <laughs> I was always that way, but I've become better at, I think, seeing multiple sides of the problem or as, say, you know, Jocko Willink would say detaching, stepping back and just being able to almost have this out-of-body experience where I can look at something, a situation, and observe if someone thinks I'm angry or if, if, if the emotional tone is off, if I'm conveying my message but I'm doing it in a way that sounds aggressive even though it's not intended to be. And um, it, was, it was really wild with, uh, uh, with Tools of Titans that as I wrote it, I'm such a checklist Excel spreadsheet, uh, data export and crunch type of guy. Uh, when I look at, and I know you do something very similar, I would imagine for behavioral change, like, okay, I want to instill this particular behavior in this following change. And I'm going to look at the science and I'm going to take this methodical step-by-step -step mm -hmm. approach and I'm going to decide on the frequency and the dosage and this and the that, and I'm going to track my metrics. So I didn't do any of that when I was, uh, editing this book, but just by the sheer exposure and osmosis, I suppose, I started, uh, and maybe it's in part because I've designed the book in such a way that these are short, very short profiles, five to 10 pages typically, and then each point, each tactic is maybe one to two paragraphs, and I just ended up using them without all of that apparatus, all that heavy lifting, and I'm not going to say bullshit, but it just showed me that you don't always have to have this huge amount of scaffolding around instilling something like that, which was reassuring for me, quite frankly, because that stuff is fatiguing. <laughs> it's, kind of, <laughs> it's kind of tiring to have all of those levels yeah. of abstraction. So uh, it's been nice to just snack on Scooby Snacks and have them actually pan out. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little relaxing that way. Yeah. I, I did go through a period, and it sounds like that's what you're talking about, where I, I was maybe tracking more than was beneficial. Like, yeah. like I, I'm a fan of track what you hack, and the rest of the time just notice how do I feel right now. And yeah. like, that's actually mindfulness. Yeah. And uh, on a certain way, and, and then doing the the reverse root cause analysis event correlation is uh, that that's a practiced art, and you can use the numbers for that. Yeah, and you can get super fancy, right? I mean, I, I've been involved with Quantified Self since the very, very first meetup, 20-some-odd people in Kevin Kelly's house in 2008 mm -hmm. or 2009. So I, I've witnessed mass data tracking and consumption, yeah. and I've done it myself. But 
I think sometimes it's as simple as something that Jodie Foster said, and I might get this slightly off, but it's pretty close, which was, in the end, success is sleeping well. <laughs> there like, you go. Very like, well said. It's like, all right, yeah. why, don't we just, mm-hmm. why don't we just look at how easy it is for you to fall asleep and how you feel when you wake up. And uh, that, is, that is, I think, as good a barometer as, as just about anything else for most of what matters. But hey, still a student, well put, still yeah. a work in progress, still trying to figure it out. All right, two more questions. One short one, one medium one. All right. Short question. What percentage of the titans out there, both the ones you've interviewed and not interviewed, do you think have been heavily influenced, not heavily, have been meaningfully influenced by a psychedelic experience? (sighs) Well, I would say in Silicon Valley, the kind of open secret is you look at the top, to your folks, and there, there. I think there are many potential explanations for this. Mm-hmm. But uh, so Eric Weinstein, who's a PhD mathematician, physicist, he's the managing director of Teal Capital, so he works directly mm-hmm. with Peter Teal. Yeah. He he calls it the he he was very much anti every drug for his entire life, as straight laced as you mm-hmm. can imagine, and only in the last few years has been exposed to psychedelics because he he identified what he called the psychedelic elite. And in Silicon Valley, he just said, hey, in the top, <laughs> say, 5 10% of the performers in pretty much every area in this particular world, this particular corner, everyone is, has used or is currently using psychedelics in some capacity. Now, I don't want to say that that is causal, that they are that good yeah. because of it. Maybe when you're that driven, your neuroses are also 100x everyone else. So you need a powerful intervention to even maintain a semblance of, of, of sanity as you're trying to hit all these home runs, maybe. But uh, I would say it's, a, it's, a, it's an extremely high percentage. If we're looking at the, ti- if we're looking at the Titans, it, mm-hmm. is a, it is a very, very, very high percentage. Not all of them are ready to talk about it publicly because of, of the of legal course. status of these compounds, yeah. but it's a, it's a very high percentage. That is my understanding as well, and my experience is that it's a substantial high percentage. I wish more of them felt safe enough to talk about it, yeah. and maybe twenty years from now they they will when when the laws change. But we can talk about it without naming names. And I just want to reiterate: that there are teenagers who listen to this, there are parents who listen to this. Like this is not dropping acid and going to Disneyland because that is like neurologically, spiritually, emotionally, psychologically dangerous and ill-advised. Like, do not play with these. We're yeah. we're talking about something different, right? Yeah, yeah, it's totally different. I mean, you would okay. treat it like you are choosing a neurosurgeon to excise a tumor yeah. from your brain. You're not going to go on mm-hmm. Craigslist to find someone to do that. You're not going to go to Burning Man and. <laughs> <laughs> grab a hula hoop and walk off into the desert with someone and ask them to perform neurosurgery on you. So treat it that way. And yeah. I mean, there are plenty of warnings and caveats and so on in Tools of Titans. So definitely yeah. don't skip those. Pay attention to the protocol. <laughs> All right, the next question and the last question of the interview, and it's one you've answered before, but I want to look at the delta here. Now that you've written Tools of Titans, you've, you've absorbed this knowledge from those 10,000 pages of transcripts, and, and the act of writing crystallizes things in your brain so, so well, it, it's really cool. Yeah. If someone came to you today and said, look, I want to kick ass at everything I do, I want to kick ass at life, what are the three most important pieces of advice you would have for me? What would you offer them? Three most important things to kick ass in all areas? Yeah, and, and was, I want to be better at everything I do. What yeah. do I need to know? All right. The first answer, if you ask Richard Branson, would be workout, exercise, seriously. Uh, so I think that uh, exercise, and specifically for me in the last few years, body weight calisthenics, uh, like gymnastic mm-hmm. strength training. There's a coach, Christopher Summer, in the, in the healthy section, uh, I talk about effectively the combination of gymnastic strength training, acro yoga, and uh, ketosis and fasting were what have completely changed my life from a physical and mental performance standpoint. Uh, so I would, I would give the same answer as Richard Branson, uh, which is workout. But okay. specifically, I would say investigate Gymnastic Bodies, which is the company, or some form of gymnastic strength training, which focuses on mobility, i.e. 
ex the ability to exhibit strength in your end ranges. It's very different mm -hmm. from passive flexibility, but it does something very interesting. I don't know if it's brain-derived neurotrophic factor or whatever, Probably. but cognitively, man, if I do that two or three times a week, even minimally, you know, short sessions, 30 to 60 minutes, it it's been a game changer. So I would say that's when, the mo when number you, one. When you cross the midline, it causes more connections between the hemispheres and a lot of the twists and things like that. You're applying pressure. I, I believe that might be yeah. part of it, but I love, yeah. love that answer. No one's yeah. ever been that specific with exercise. Yeah. So thank you for specificity. Yeah, All right, what's for number sure. Two? For sure. So number two would be, it would have to be diet related. Uh, I would say uh, specifically, what would I say specifically related to diet? Honestly, I would say, this is going to sound weird, but a combination, and I'm kind of cheating here, but combination of regular fasting for longevity, because what good does it do you if you kick yeah. ass for 10 years and then croak? <laughs> Amen. So uh, regular fasting, and um, we don't have time to get into exactly what that means, but I do shorter regular monthly and then longer, say a quarterly yeah. and annual. And uh, <laughs> eating shitty food. Uh, and this is, is maybe bleeding into a number three, but eating really, not shitty, eating really, 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 really cheap food for uh, at least a few days a month, wearing the same clothing for that entire period, <laughs> and try sleeping on a sleeping bag on your floor. And here's why. This is related to a letter. I'm going to get super specific and nerdy. Okay, this is, I love this. This is letter 13 on, on festivals and fasting from Seneca the Younger to Lucilius. It's a letter where he talks about fear rehearsal. You're practicing your worst case scenario. Losing all your money, let's say. So what do you do? Maybe you go camping, but you would wear, say, I wear like a cheap t-shirt and pair of jeans, cheap shoes, that's it for the week. And then I'll either fast the whole time or I will survive, and it's really not that bad, quite frankly, on say, instant oatmeal or rice and beans, and yeah, something that's like two to three dollars a day max in cost, and uh, experience what it would be like to rehearse poverty in this case. And it is, it is, it makes you extremely resilient and able to take bold steps in different directions because you realize that the worst case, in many respects, isn't that bad. You might actually come out of the yes. experiment really, really happy. That's that's another weird side effect. So. I know that was a huge cheat, but that's like the diet <laughs> slash practice of some some pragmatic Pre practice uh, dietary poverty. There, there, we, there go. we go. There we go. And then number three, number three, kick ass in all areas would be ask absurd questions. Ask absurd questions. This came up over and over and over and over again. Uh, interviewing Peter Thiel, who's you know, serial billionaire, just yeah, he's a cool guy, incredible guy. Uh, Peter Diamandis, chairman of the X Prize. Uh, questions like. Why can't you? Why can't you achieve your ten-year plans in the next six months? And don't just think about it for ten seconds and then move on. Let's sit down and write three pages, stream of consciousness, uh, or questions like: um, This is a question from Peter Diamandis. He asks companies who want his investment. He'll say, "How could you ten x your company's economics in the next?" I'm making up this number, but three months. And if they mm -hmm. say that's impossible, his response is, "I don't accept that answer. Try again." And these types yeah. of, of crazy absurd questions, you know, I used to ask myself, I still do sometimes, but like if I had a gun against my head, I was like, for when I was writing this book, okay, so this is, this is actually kind of funny. I was, I kept on coming up on these absurd questions, absurd questions like, okay, well, let's try that in the process of writing the book. And I would journal on questions like, how would I write this book if I only had a week to do it? Okay. And uh, it's very important that they're absurd. I mean, seemingly impossible. And the goal isn't to determine how to write it in the week. It's to aim so high and crazy that you probably land somewhere in between and there's something you can mm -hmm. really use that you wouldn't have thought of if you're trying to do it incrementally. So asking absurd questions is, uh, is, is number three for me. I, uh, I love those answers and they are different than your last ones. Not that I've memorized them, but... Uh... After 300 and something, uh, some large number, I, I don't have them all memorized, but I'm going to go back when we write the blog post for this yeah. and we'll do a comparison. Yeah, I'd be curious. And, I'd be curious to like, check it out. Like, like, what did Tim Ferriss learn from his, his uh, from the Tim Ferriss show and from Tools of Titans? Yeah. Now, the book, the book is available now. People yeah. can pick it up. 
It's everywhere. Uh, they pick it up at, at their bookstore. They can go online. They can order it uh, from wherever your books are sold. And you have a, a website set up for it, toolsoftitans.com? Yeah, toolsoftitans.com. You can find sample chapters. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger wrote the forward, which is still surreal and blows my mind. <laughs> That's um, pretty cool. <laughs> which, is, which is honestly really empowering to read by itself. It's, it's, it's a, it's, its title could be, because it's the beginning of the piece, I Am Not a Self-Made Man. Really interesting, about learning from other people. And uh, that's, that's, that's a good place to go, Tools of Titans, or BNN, yeah, .com, Amazon.com, wherever.com, or your local bookstore. You'll be able to find it everywhere. It's hard to miss. Awesome. I mean, it's gigantic. and has a bright red co cover on it. So <laughs> if it's there, it'll be hard to miss. Well, Tim, thanks for being on Bulletproof Radio today. My pleasure, man. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. If you enjoyed today's episode, you know what to do. Head on out and pick up a copy of Tim's book, read it, use the knowledge in it to do something good. It's a pretty straightforward ask, and it's actually worth your time to do it. I really do my best to not waste your time on the show. This was hopefully a useful interview for you with lots of tidbits, and I'm looking forward to hearing from you on the next episode. A Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.